Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So today's episode 190 of the Jimmy'sTable.com podcast entitled, Father Forgive Them, Thoughts on the War Between Israel and Gaza. Unless you've been living under a rock this past week, we have seen war break out between Israel and the Palestinians, um, specifically the Palestinians that live in Gaza and that are represented by the their government uh, and the terrorist organization known as Hamas. Um, there's been a lot of frightening, scary, evil, and vile things happening. Um, there's been murders, there's been kidnappings, uh, there's been the kidnapping of innocent people, um, there's been allegedly the beheading of babies, um, and all this happened kind of out of nowhere from, um, a seemingly unannounced, unexpected attack, um, regarding Hamas against, uh, Israel. Uh, and as a result, Israel has responded with violence and they've launched their own rocket attacks against, um, the people of Gaza and Hamas leadership. And at the time of the recording of this podcast, Israel is currently laying siege to Gaza. Um, they have cut off power, water, and food supplies to the people of Gaza. Um, and they currently are surrounding the little tiny country, for lack of a better term, um, with all their military and they are ready to launch a ground invasion. Of course, this has provoked a strong international response. There are people who have come out who are pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel, and they say the Palestinians are individuals that live in an apartheid state. They say the Palestinians live in an open-air prison in Gaza. Um, and they say Israel is uh, a bad actor and that they do nothing but oppress and that they're fundamentally no different um, than the, the British rule over South Africa um, from last century. Um, it's a very dire situation and a lot of people are shouting things regarding war crimes, um, incivil uh, attitudes, um, you know, unhumane un language is being used, um, and things are growing hairy. Uh, we don't know quite what's going to happen yet. It certainly looks like Israel is ready to flatten Gaza like a pancake. Um, there has been outcry um, from the nations. There have been protests, and people are starting to draw lines in the sand and take sides. Um, and... You know, if, you, if you're like me, you, you kind of wonder what's going to happen. Nobody knows for sure. There's definitely talk that this could lead to a larger regional and possibly even worldwide war um, with talks of possibility of individuals like individual nations like Iran being involved and perhaps being backed by Russia and China. Uh, and then you have senators and leaders in the United States like Lindsey Graham who are um, and Nicole Haley or Nikki Haley, 
um, and individuals like that who are calling for war against Iran because Iran is believed to have possibly funded or been operationally involved in the terrorist attack of Hamas against the uh, Israelis. Um, and things are getting scary. And people are drawing lines in the sand. Uh, there's been lots of frightening language used. We don't know how this is going to end. And uh, a lot of people are starting to realize that there may not be a diplomatic solution to this problem, um, especially with the grievances between the Israelis and the Palestinians being so deep, um, going back for decades now, and involving deeply historic issues um, that have not been resolved in the decades that they've played out, um, let alone uh, something that's likely to be resolved uh, in the next matter of days, weeks, months, or even years. And as a result, war, perhaps a very bad war, looks like it's inevitable. And people don't know what they're going to do. But one thing's for sure, people have been more than happy to take sides. And I've definitely been... Uh, one who has been tempted to take sides in the issue, but I pause because I realize that while I'm no expert on the issues surrounding Israel and Palestine, um, and even amongst those who are experts, there's very sharp disagreements as to understanding the nature of what's going on, um, that causes me all the more to pause and want to choose my words carefully, um, and it's been something that I feel like I need to comment on, um, but I don't want to comment on this issue as somebody who pretends to be an expert. I just want to come and talk to you today about this issue as somebody who maybe, perhaps like you, shares a burden for this, um, because you realize that there's a lot of issues going on, there's a lot of things happening outside of your control, um, and it looks like the world is getting ready to lose its mind over this bloodbath and feud that has existed between the Israeli and Palestinians for decades now. Um, and so I don't want to weigh in on an expert as an expert, but I want to weigh in on the matter as somebody who maybe perhaps like you has some knowledge of these things, has taken some interest in it, but above all is somebody who just shares a burden, um, and is somebody who is gravely concerned about what's going to happen. And I want to offer perspective as somebody who is steeped in the scriptures, um, and to reflect on it, not in perhaps the way you probably have heard people try to reflect on this topic before, um, but uh, just with the unique perspective I hope to bring on it. Um, so I hope that this can be part of a larger conversation that perhaps the thoughts I offer in today's podcast um, will be something that you can chew on and chew on with others. Um, not as somebody who wants to pontificate um, or you know declare some sort of thus saith the Lord over the situation, but as somebody who is just like you, concerned and burdened and maybe even a little afraid. And as somebody who doesn't see this issue as exactly a black and white issue. Um, you know, I, I, I began to scour the internet this week trying to look for perspective that could be informative and thought-provoking, um, something to help me gauge my own thoughts and, 
you know, I spent a lot of time looking on YouTube at the History Channel and um, some other different websites that offered various historical perspectives on this matter. Um, but I came across this very interesting post on Twitter, now known as X.com, um, by a reporter named Isaac Saul. And it's a very long post, and I thought it was definitely worth reading because it's the post of somebody who perhaps not only has some skin in the game, who's been involved in some of these issues, but somebody who, too, is also wrestling and who doesn't see things just in a black and white way. And I thought it was something definitely worth chewing on. And this is a really long post, but I thought it was so good that I wouldn't just link to it in the show notes at jimmystable.com. But I actually thought I'd just take time to read it. It's probably going to take about 10 or 15 minutes for me to read. It's a very long post, thanks to uh, Twitter uh, under the uh, auspices of Elon Musk, now making Twitter a place that people can almost have long blog posts. Um, but I thought I'd read this in its entirety because it's just so good, and it summarizes very much my heart of the greater context of what's happening and why this isn't just such a black and white issue as some people are making it out to be. Um, so let me go ahead and take a moment now and read this post from Isaac Saul, uh, who's at Ike underscore Saul over at Twitter. Um, I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you're interested in it, but I want to read it now. So Isaac Saul says, People ask me all the time if I'm pro-Israel because I'm a Jew who has lived in Israel. And my answer is that of being pro-Israel or being pro-Palestine or being a Zionist does not properly capture the nuance of thought most people do or should have about the issue. It certainly doesn't capture mine. I have a lot to say. I spent the last 72 hours writing, texting, and talking to Israelis, Jews, Muslims, and Palestinians. Much of my reaction is going to piss off people on both sides. But I am exhausted and hurting, and I do not think there is any way to discuss the situation without being radically honest about my views. So I'm going to say what I believe to be true to the best I can. Let me start with this. It could have been me. That's a hard thought to shake when watching the videos out of Israel, the concertgoers fleeing across an empty expanse, the hostages being paraded throughout the streets, the people shot in the head at bus stops or in their cars. I went to those parties in the desert. I rubbed shoulders with Israelis and Arabs and Jews and Muslims, and I could have easily accepted an invitation to some concert near Sadat or gone without a care, only to be indiscriminately slaughtered, or perhaps worse, taken hostage and tortured. I don't believe Hamas is killing Israelis to liberate themselves, nor do I believe they are doing it to make peace. They're doing this because they represent the devil on the shoulder of every oppressed Palestinian who has lost someone in this conflict. They're doing it because they want vengeance. They are evening the score and acting on the worst of our human impulses to respond to blood with blood, an inclination that is easy to give in to after what their people have endured. It should not be hard to understand their logic. It is only hard to accept that humans are capable of being driven to this. Not defending Hamas is a very low bar to clear. Please clear it. It's not possible to recap the entire 5,000-year history of the people fighting over this strip of land in one newsletter. There are plenty of easily accessible places you can learn about it if you want to. And by the way, many of you should. Far too many people speak on this issue with an obscene amount of ignorance, loads of arrogance, and a narrow historical lens focused on the last few decades. But I'll briefly highlight a few things that are important to me. In my opinion... 
The Jewish people are a legitimate historical claim to the land of Israel. Jews had already been expelled and returned and expelled and again a half dozen times before the rise of the Muslim and Arab rule of the Ottoman Empire. Of course it's messy because we Jews and Arabs and Muslims are all cousins and descendants of the same Canaanites. But Arabs won the land centuries ago the same way Israel and the Jews won in the 20th century, through conflict and war. The British defeated the Ottoman Empire and then came the Balfour Declaration, which amounted to the British granting the area to the Jewish people, a promise they'd later try to renege on, all before the wars that have defended the region since 1948. The historical moment in the late 40s was unique. After World War II, with many Arab and Muslim states already in existence, and after 6 million Jews were slaughtered, the global community felt it was important to grant the Jewish people a homeland. In a more logical or just world, that homeland would have been in Europe as a kind of reparation for what the Nazis and others before them had done to the Jews, or perhaps in the Americas, like the land of Alaska, or somewhere else. But the Jews wanted Israel... The British had taken to the Zionist movement, and the British had conquered the Ottoman Empire, which had handed them control of the land, and America and Europe didn't want the Jews. As a result, we got Israel. The Arab states had already rejected the partitioned Israel repeatedly before World War II, and rejected it again after the Holocaust and at the end of the war. They did not want to give up on even a little bit of their land, but a bunch of Jewish interlopers who were granted it all of a sudden by British interlopers who had arrived a hundred years so or so prior, who could blame them for that? It had been centuries since Jews lived there in large numbers, and now they wanted to return in waves as secularized Europeans. Many of us would probably react the same way here in America. So, just as humans have done forever, they fought. The many existing Arab states turned against the burgoing Jewish state. One side won and the other side lost. This is the brutal and broken and violent world we live in, but it is what created the global world order we now have. Are Israelis the British people colonizers because of the 20th century? Sure, but that view flattens thousands of years of history and conflict in the context of World War I and World War II. I don't view Israelis and Brits as colonizers any more than the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or the Mongols or the Egyptians or the Ottomans who were all battled over the same strip of land as early as 800 years before Jesus' time until now. The Jews who founded Israel just happened to have won the last big battle for it. You can't speak about this issue in a vacuum. You can't pretend that it wasn't just 60 years ago when Israel was surrounded on all sides by Arab states who wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. Despite the balance of power shifting this century, the threat is still a reality. And you can't talk about that without remembering the only reason the Jews were in Israel in the first place was that they'd spent the previous centuries fleeing a bunch of Europeans who wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. And then Hitler showed up. American partisans have a narrow view of the history and an American-centric lens that is infuriating to witness. As Lee Fang perfectly put it, Hamas would be absolutely... Hamas would absolutely execute the ACAB lefties cheering on the horrific violence against Israelis if they had lived in Gaza, and U.S. right-wingers blindly cheering on Israeli subjugation of Palestinians would rebel twice as violently if Americans were sub subjugated to similar occupation. And yet, many Americans only view modern-day Israel as the powerful one in this dynamic, which is true. They obviously are. 
It isn't a fair fight, and it hasn't been for decades, because Israel's government is rich and resourceful, has the backing of the United States and most of Europe, and has an incredibly powerful military. At the same time, Israeli leadership has made technological and military advances that have further tipped those scales. All while the Israeli government has helped create a resource-thin open-air prison of 2 million Arabs in Gaza. Conversely, Palestinians are devoid of any real unified leadership, and the Arab world is now divided on the issue of Palestine. Israel is unwilling to give the people of Gaza and the West Bank more than an inch of freedom to live. These are largely the refugees and descendants of the refugees of the 1948-1967 wars that Israel won. And you can't keep 2 million people in that condition that those in the Gaza Strip live in and not expect an event like this. I'm sorry to say that while blood on the ground is fresh, the Israelis who were killed in this attack have largely nothing to do with those conditions other than being born at a time when Israel and Jews have the upper hand in the conflict. Some of the victims weren't even Israeli. They were tourists. That is why we describe them as innocent and why Hamas has only reaffirmed that they were and are a brutal terror organization with this attack. An organization that I hope is quickly toppled for both the sake of the Palestinian peoples and the Israelis. But as some with a deep love for Israel, with friends in danger and people I know still missing, it breaks my heart to say, but I'm saying it again because it remains perhaps the most salient point of context in a tangled mess full of centuries of context. You cannot keep two million people living in the conditions people in Gaza are living in this and expect peace. You can't. And you shouldn't. Their environment is antithetical to the human condition. Violent rebellion is guaranteed. Guaranteed as sure as the sun rising. And the cycle of violence seems locked into self-perpetuation because both sides see a score to settle. One, Israel has already responded with vengeance and they will continue to do so. Their desire for violence is not unlike Hamas. It's just as much about blood for blood as any legitimate security measure. Israel will have every right to respond with force. Toppling Hamas, a group, by the way, Israel aired and supporting, will now be the objective and the civilian death will be seen as a necessity, collateral damage. But Israel will also do a bunch of things that they don't have a right to do. They will flatten apartment buildings and kill civilians and children and many in the global community will probably hear them and cheer them on while they do so. They have already stopped the flow of water, electricity, and food to 2 million people and killed dozens of civilians in their retaliatory bombings. We should never accept this. Never lose sight that this is horror is being inflicted on human beings. And as the group Beats the Salam said, there is no justification for such crimes, whether they are committed as a part of a struggle for freedom from oppression or cited as part of a war against terror. I mourn the innocence of Palestine just as I do the innocence of Israel. As of late, many, many more have died on their side than Israel's. And many more Palestinians are likely to die in this spat of violence too. Unfortunately, most people in the West only pay attention to this story when Hamas or a Palestinian in Gaza or the West Bank commits an act of violence. Palestinian citizens die regularly at the hands of Israeli military, and their plight largely goes unnoticed until they respond with violence of their own. Israel had already killed an estimated 250 Palestinians, including 47 children, this year alone. And that's just in the West Bank. Two, 
Every single time Israel kills someone in the name of self-defense, they create a handful of new radicalized extremists who will feel justified in wanting to take an Israeli life for retribution sometime in the future. Half of Gaza's 2 million people are under the age of 19. They know little of nothing besides Hamas rule since 2006, Israeli occupation, blockades, and rockets falling from the sky. The suffering of these innocent children born into this reality is incomprehensible to me. They will suffer more now because of Hamas's action and Israel's response, although no fault of their own. There is no way out of this pattern until one side exercises a restraint or leaders on both sides find a new solution. Israelis will tell you that if Palestinians put their guns down, then the war would end. But if Israel put their guns down, then they'd be wiped off the planet. I don't have a crystal ball, and I can't tell you what is true. But what I am certain of is that every time Israel kills more innocents, they engender more rage and hatred of the recruit of Palestinians and Arabs to the cause against them. There's simply no disputing this. So why did this happen now? I'm not sure the answer to the question except to say that it was bound to happen eventually. It was a massive policy and intelligence failure, and Netanyahu should pay the price, pay the price politically. He failed as a leader. Iran probably helped organize the attack, and money freed up by the Biden administration's prisoner swap probably didn't help the situation either. Israel's increasingly extremist government and settlers provoking Palestinians certainly didn't help, nor has going to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and desecrating it, nor do blockades and bombings and indiscriminate subjugation of a whole people, nor does refusing to talk to a non-terrorist leaders in Palestine, nor does illegal, illegally continuing to expand the steel what is left of Palestinian land, as many Jews and Israelis have been doing in the 21st century despite cries from the global community to stop. A violent response was predictable. In fact, plenty of people already did predict it. Israel is forever stuffing these people into tinier and tinier boxes with fewer and fewer resources. But if you want to blame Israeli leaders for continuing to expand and settle land that does not belong to them, as I do, then you should also spare some blame for Palestinian leaders for repeatedly not accepting a partitioned Israel during the 20th century that could have led to peace, as I do. Please also remember this. Hamas is still an extremist group. The Palestinian people do not have a government or leaders who legitimately represent their interests. And it is sure as hell isn't Hamas. Will some Palestinians cheer and clap at the dead and spit on them as they are paraded through Gaza? Yes, they will. And they have. Many will also mourn because they loathe Hamas and know this, is the only make, this will only make things worse. This is no different than how some Americans cheer at the dead in every single war we've ever fought. It's no different than the Israelis who set up lawn chairs to watch their government bomb Palestine and cheer them on too. This doesn't mean Palestinians or Israelis or Americans are evil. It means that some of them are going to give to their violent impulses and their zealous feelings of righteous vengeance. Solutions, you ask? I can't say I have any. If you come here for that, I'm sorry. The two-state solution looks like it's dead to me. A three-state solution makes some sense, but feels out of the view of all the people who matter and could make it happen. I wish a one-state solution felt realistic, a world of Israelis and Arabs and Muslims and Jews living side by side with equal rights, fully integrated and diffused of their hate, is a version of Israel that I would adore. But it seems less and less realistic with every new act of violence. 
Am I pro-Israel or pro-Palestine? I have no idea. I'm pro not killing civilians. I'm pro not trapping millions of people in open-air prisons. I'm pro not shooting grandmas in the back of the head. I'm pro not flattening apartment complexes. I'm pro not raping women and taking hostages. I'm pro not unjustly imprisoning people without undue process. I'm pro freedom and pro peace and pro all the things we never see in this conflict anymore. Whatever that is, I want none of it. I think it's good to just breathe there for a second. Um, those were the words of Isaac Saul. Again, link to the show notes, jimmystable.com for episode 190. Um, you know, it's a lot to chew on. You may even want to go back and listen to it twice, or you can just go to the link at, uh, that I have for Twitter or x.com as all the cool kids are calling it these days. (laughs) Um, I think it's worth reading. I think it's worth digesting. And you know, honestly, there's not too much I feel like I have to add on to it because I think that greatly summarizes my feelings on this matter um, just from a general worldview standpoint of things. Like, uh, it's a complicated matter. There's a lot of crap that's going down. A lot of bad stuff happening on both sides. And I think that anybody who is dogmatically one-sided pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian on this particular issue, I think they're drinking Kool-Aid and they're only going to help make matters worse. This is a complicated issue. There are, are there are those who want to say it's not a complicated issue, that it's black and white, that's straightforward, and then they go ahead and pick one side. But I don't think such people operate, unfortunately, with... Um, with a lot of clear thought, um, because such people are just not listening to what is happening and what's being said, and not taking seriously the claims of both sides, and they lack the imagination to put themselves in the shoes of somebody else, um, and to share a perspective of somebody who's living in that world um, on both sides of the issue. Um, I definitely see it as a both sides of the issue sort of thing, you know, not to justify anybody's actions, of course, no more than Isaac Saul did, um, but it's complicated. We're still dealing, and it's, it's almost a dismay to me, that we're still dealing with issues that have basically not been solved since World War I. It's like we just punted a football uh, to try to solve some issues, and now here we are. A hundred years later, still wrestling with issues unresolved from the issues that led to World War One, that led to World War Two, and, you know, even led to the Cold War. Um, you know, and we're just playing out the drama continued. In spite of all the blood that has been shed, in spite of all the peace treaties that have been signed, in spite of all the progress we've attempted to make as as a country, as a world, um, here we are still circling this drain. Um, and it, it just seems like it's something we're never going to escape from. And as and I thought about these issues and thought about the complications associated with them, with the actions of the Palestinians, with the actions of the Israelis, you know, 
I kept finding myself drawn back to the cross. I kept finding myself drawn back to Jesus. And Jesus, who cried out on the cross with his last breaths, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I think those are words that we need to allow to haunt us, to help understand the situation. Especially when you think about the words of Christ there, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And those words kind of are spoken in great irony. Because when Jesus was dying on that cross, the Roman butchers who put him there and nailed him there, if you would have asked them that day if they knew what they were doing, they would have absolutely said they would have known what they were doing. They are professional executioners. They are professional executioners for the Roman government who existed to put down insurrectionists. And they knew exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. But Jesus still cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In spite of the full assurance that those individuals had in that moment in time, that they knew exactly what they were doing. And the same goes with the Jews who handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. They knew what they were doing too. Yet Jesus still cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Both sides, both the the Romans and the Jews of Jesus' day, both sides of the parties that helped put Jesus to death, crucifying him on a cross, were individuals that considered themselves well-informed, well-engaged, who would have been the leading experts of their day. (laughs) You know? They knew exactly what they were doing. Yet Jesus still cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I can't help but feel the echoes of those words haunting my mind today in this situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If you were to ask the leaders of Hamas, they, know, they would tell you they know exactly what they're doing. If you were to ask the Israelis, they would say, we know exactly what we're doing. Both sides would point out with expert precision and knowledge to be able to recall with exactitude why it is they're doing what they're doing today. And people chant on and cheer on both sides, supporting and denying the other, claiming to have such knowledge themselves of why Each side is doing what it's doing and why it's justified in doing it. But I still feel Jesus' heart saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the hell of it all, isn't it? (laughs) It's the hell of it all. We're so sure. We're so sure. But Jesus looks on and says, no, no. You don't know what you're doing. 
both sides of this war. I think we often forget when we're so sure ourselves of which side is the right side, which side is the evil, which side is the good, what seems so clear to us. Jesus is still saying, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. And I, I feel like when we look back at the cross, Jesus offering such words of forgiveness for butchers, for torturers, for rebels, for imperialist dogs, for butchers, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we look back at the cross and we see Jesus bearing the sins of the world in his body on that cross, carrying their burdens, their griefs, their angers, their pains, their confusions, everything. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And at the end of the day, I don't see Jesus taking sides on any of this conflict. I don't see Jesus taking sides of any of this conflict, and I would urge you not to feel the temptation to do the same, even if it seems so clear to you. Because the vantage point you have is not that of a crucified Messiah. Because the world looks a bit different when you're hanging on a cross. And I think when you're not hanging on a cross, and you still think you can figure things out, things look different on the ground when they do when you're exalted and hanging on a cross as Jesus was. And so I want to have the perspective of Jesus who could cry out, Father, forgive them, they know what they do. I want to have the perspective of Jesus who bore their griefs, bore their angers, bore their sins, bore their transgressions, bore their lust for blood and vengeance and everything that hell had stirred up in the world that caused Jesus to die. And it's the same hell that's still fighting today to cause people in Palestine and Israel to die. Our position as a Christian should be to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. Our position as a Christian should be not to be so tethered to this world, to feel so caught up in the nationalism of any particular side. For we have a nation that doesn't come from this world. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. You could almost say we're kind of like Switzerland, not taking sides. We're ultimately priests, we're ultimately kings, we're ultimately ambassadors for Christ and the kingdom. As Christians, we should have a different agenda than to point out which side is right and which side is wrong and who deserves to die. Because our perspective should not be about trying to figure out who is supposed to die. Because the one who, is, who did die ultimately gave his life for them all. 
And we should point the world and its madness to the one who died on a cross, who bore the sin of the whole world on that cross. And all the fighting that this world has to offer and all of its wrath, he himself experienced. So my prayer is that in this we would identify with Christ and Christ identifies with the Palestinian and Christ identifies with the Israeli. Christ identifies with the innocent and Christ identifies with the butcher and the madmen and the men who are wanting just to plunge this whole world into hell. So let's identify with Christ. Let's share his heart, his grief, his burden, his agony. The agony that he experienced for both sides. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Today's podcast, I want to close out with one passage from the book of Isaiah. It's a a very favorite passage of mine. It's one that gives me a lot of hope. It's one that the prophets hung their hopes on. It's one that I believe is a representation ultimately of the kingdom of God and the work that Jesus came to do. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established in the chief of the mountains. and will be raised above all the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and so that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many nations, and will mediate for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Forgive me, I'm getting a little emotional today (laughs) as I process this. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, and I've been pretty busy. I'm sorry, haven't been more frequent. But I felt the need today after processing things this past week and watching some of the things unfold in the news, watching some horrific videos on Twitter and YouTube and all those places, plunging myself into what people had to say on this particular issue. That I just thought I had to, I, I lost some sleep this week thinking about it, you know, to tell you the truth. I haven't really talked about that with anybody, but I lost some sleep thinking about this stuff this week. And I don't claim to have a solution any more than this Isaac Saul did or, you know, anybody else for that matter. But I just thought with today's podcast, I'd share what I felt like was the heart of Christ in this issue and to try to get us to 
see a perspective that perhaps you haven't seen or considered yet. So that you could look at this issue from the perspective of Christ through his eyes, that you would feel his heart. And I hope in today's podcast I've conveyed the sense of that. And that before you get on Twitter or Facebook and post the next thing and spout off the next opinion, that you allow your heart to feel the heart of Christ and start from there. And start from there. Um, Because I think until we get that heart of Christ, until we have this prophetic hope of Isaiah chapter 2 built into us, until we are really willing to identify with Israeli as well as the Palestinian, until we get there, we're never going to be able to move forward, and the issue will never be solved. And I don't know that it will ever be solved on this time of, on this side of eternity, and depending on your eschatological end-time view perspective uh, of things, of a particular opinion that I share, I don't know that it will be resolved on this side of eternity either. But that doesn't mean that we can't go about these things with the heart of Christ, to see things as he sees it, to feel his burdens, his heart, to be transformed so that we can be more like Christ and less like the talking heads and the individuals with hot takes online. And so that we can ultimately grow into people that God would have us to become so that we don't end up perpetuating all the nonsense that is currently going on in the world. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 190. Father, forgive them. Thoughts on the war between Israel and Gaza. If you've enjoyed this podcast or want to dialogue with me, feel free to email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. I'm also available on Facebook and Twitter or x.com. You can find links to it at the show notes over at jimmystable.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review over on Spotify or Apple, the two places you can leave glowing five-star reviews. And if you haven't had the chance to subscribe yet, jimmystable.com slash subscribe. Pick your favorite way to subscribe, whether you listen through Apple, Spotify, or you just want a weekly email newsletter update for whenever I send out my next podcast. And it may not be on a weekly basis anymore. <laughs> like I said, it's been a couple months since I did my last one. Maybe a couple more weeks or another month or so before I do another. Um, I'm not sure yet, but I hope you sign up and listen so that you can continue to get podcast updates and listen to this because I definitely feel like I have some important things to share. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Take care, everybody. God bless. Have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's so right on, man. You said it all. <laughs>